0: Well, in all the problems that we've seen Jesus addressing throughout the gospel together, even in the last few weeks, and there's been a lot of problems that we've seen, right? There is no problem that comes close to the problem that we're going to see today. Sure, Jesus has healed many. He saved his disciples from a life-threatening storm. They thought they were going to die, and he delivered poor souls from demonic oppression. But there's still a bigger problem than all of that put together and to make things even more interesting and personal and direct and applicable to each and every one of us. It's a problem that you and I share together. We all have it, and every single person in the history of the world has this problem As well. Worse than leprosy or paralysis or sickness or physical dangers or cancer or difficulties or challenges or issues or relational. Worse than all of those problems. Worse than them all. For indeed, our spiritual problem, your spiritual problem, it paints a target on each one of us, a target that points to eternal. Guilt, eternal punishment. It's the problem that we are all sinners. Because all of us in this room and throughout the whole world are born in sin and freely practice it often. We still sin even if we're believers. And let me point this out. Even for those who deny that they're sinners and pretend that they have it all together, they have that problem even if they don't admit it themselves. But as we're going to see today, Jesus is the sinner saver. He's the sinner saver. So if you're a sinner here, you've come to the right place. Because that is why Jesus was born to begin with, to come into the world as Matthew one twenty one tells us what? To save his people from sin their sins. But we can hear a passage like that, can't we? And it could seem all a little bit abstract. You might say, okay, he saves people, he saves his people, he saves sinners, but show me where that's the case. Show me the people that he saves. And that brings us right here in our passage to see that Jesus is powerful and authoritative also in his power and in his authority to deal with our biggest problem of sin and guilt. Let's see it together, this big problem that he deals with right here in our our text in Matthew chapter 9 and verses 1 to 8 and point number 1 as we see it in the paralytic sinner. Look with me in Matthew 9 and verse 1 together. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. You see, Jesus is such an authoritative king and savior that people Oftentimes got scared of his demonstration of kingly power. Did you see it there? Last week we saw that the disciples were in awe and wonder and just they were just unsure of what they were looking at in Jesus as he calmed the storm. In a sense, there was there was a fear and an awe in his presence to be able to calm the storm like that. This week we see the text says that the crowds were afraid, fear came upon them in this demonstration with the paralytic. Did you see that? The crowds never heard a teacher or a preacher with the kind of authority that Jesus had as they listened to him in his preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And they never seen someone simultaneously forgive and then also miraculously heal as we just read about. Now, we've been seeing Jesus going around and healing. Everybody's coming to him. Healing was not, you know, something that would have caused this combination of fear specifically. But you see, it's this this unique coming together of his actual removal and forgiveness of his sins. I I mean, who talks like that? Have you ever heard anybody who just, I forgive your sins, like, like, at the end of the day, this was an authoritative, clear, definitive statement that he just says to this guy and he tells this paralyzed man his sins are forgiven and then he instantly, after the forgiveness of his sins, saves this guy. He gets up and, and, and he walks away from, from someone who is unable to move and paralyzed to someone who is well and up after being told his sins are for. Given this was something that caused the fear and wonder and glory and awe of God in the crowds. This wonderful demonstration. Let me paint the picture of the paralytic for us all here as we learn some more that we more than what we just read in some of the other gospel accounts. If you remember, this is the paralytic man who was so bad off, unable to move, had to be kind of laid on a bed like a stretcher almost, who had good friends who cared about him who mapped out together a creative plan and path to get to Jesus through a roof in the home that he was in. This is that story. The other gospel accounts point to that. Matthew doesn't mention that specific aspect. But remember, this is the situation in which this man is being let down like Mission Impossible right down to Jesus, just right there, right before him. Now, all of these guys, these friends of his believed that Jesus was able to heal, and that is why they went out of their way to get in contact with Jesus and to get their friend before Jesus because he was in a bad state. He was in a, a crippled or paralyzed state, and he needed help. But I want you to see here that though the friends were looking for physical healing of their friend, I believe that all of them, including the paralytic himself, Had the faith that Jesus was not just some magic healer or some genie to grant their wishes, but I think we see here clearly that their faith in Jesus was much more than that, and that he was actually believing in Jesus in a kind of saving faith way, not only to cure sickness, disease, and disability, but also to forgive sins. They saw him as Savior. Now, why do I say that? Because it says in Matthew 9 two, the second half of that, it says clearly, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Clearly, they all had faith because it said Jesus saw their faith collectively, which included the paralytic, correct, who also had faith, because no one is forgiven for their sins based on another person's faith for them, right? For instance, a child doesn't get forgiveness of sins because they have Christian parents. And a spouse isn't automatically saved because they're married to a believer. And this paralytic man was not forgiven of his sins because of his friend's faith, but because of his own faith in Jesus. And to add to that, he was not forgiven of his sins simply because all of them went through this whole commotion to get to Jesus, went out of their way with this plan and up through the, all these wonderful things that they did. I mean, they showed some ingenuity. It was a wonderful thing for them to do. It was a thoughtful thing uh, to get to Jesus. But there were a lot of people that were flocking to Jesus, trying to get before Jesus, and no one is forgiven by Jesus simply because they're coming to him and interested in him or because they want to get something for him alone. It's not just that, that their sins are forgiven. Remember, last week we saw the scribe come to Jesus who was called out for not being willing to take uh, the hard road because he he just wanted an easier path and didn't realize the cost of following Jesus. And then the other follower that we saw who was, was not really willing to obey Jesus as boss and authority because of his own plans and because he wanted to get his ducks in a row. So just being interested in Jesus, knowing Jesus, following him, going to him, wanting to be healed. I mean, we can add, of course, those who came to Jesus for another meal after his miraculous feeding. Remember what happened there? Jesus calls them out in John chapter 6 that they're just interested in more food. They're not really interested in following Jesus And and seeking salvation from Jesus, they were just interested in what they can get from him. So I want us to see that the paralytic here trusted Jesus himself to cover all his sins. Or else it would never be said that Jesus had forgiven him of his sins. Jesus doesn't tell someone that they're forgiven of sins if they do not have faith in him. People who do not believe he has the power and ability to care and to forgive them of their sins are what? They're not forgiven. It's it's just that clear. I I want us to see that important impact and implication here in this passage. Because I clarify this because sometimes the story can be told and read as if the friends in this paralytic were somehow shocked or unaware or surprised to find forgiveness in Jesus. But if that was the case, would they have had faith that saves to begin with? No, not at all. Would Jesus commend them and save this paralytic sinner without that kind of faith? I don't think so, because Jesus doesn't save unbelieving people who aren't recognizing their sin and seeing their need in a Savior. The skeptical ones in this account, it wasn't the friends in this paralytic. They had great faith, as you see. The skeptical ones were the religious leaders or the scribes, as you see. Ironically enough, the people that should know and and have hearts and awareness of Scripture miss the point here, don't they? Do you see the contrast? The great faith in Jesus on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the doubt of the scribes. These scribes are thinking to themselves, right? Who does this Jesus think he is? How can he claim to forgive sins? They saw Jesus in his claim to forgive as a personal affirmation, him saying himself that he was divine, that he was God. Why? Because only God can forgive sins in that way. And notice they didn't even have to say a word, did they? Audibly. But Jesus read their minds. (laughs) And he knew what they were thinking. And he knew that they thought he was blaspheming in his claim and what he said about his forgiveness. Can you imagine how taken aback and thrown off that they must have been that day, internally doubting and judging Jesus, getting angry about Jesus, and then immediately in that moment of doubt, Jesus calls out their secret thoughts? I mean, that alone, you'd think, would have convinced them that he was something special, that he was something different. I mean, he was reading their minds. Who could do that but God alone? Sometimes you think your spouse can read your mind, or sometimes you think somebody who's a really good friend might read their mind, but they can't really read your mind. Only God can do that, and then also only God can forgive. These scribes were right to see that direct forgiveness of sins, I mean, actually removal of sins, is only a function and a feature of God himself. Nobody else can do that definitively. I mean, we might forgive one another, and that's that's important, and that's good, but we can't ever go up and say, hey, I'm declaring that I am able to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. No, only God can do that. Jesus is God, so they rightly recognized the fact that this was a this was god's job, this was a something that God had done, but they were wrong in denying that Jesus was fully divine himself and not only did Jesus say and state that sin was forgiven, but he also demonstrated it in his knowledge of their thoughts, and also he adds to it the actual physical healing of the paralytic man as well. And though a mere claim of forgiveness might have seemed empty without this act of healing, I want us to see that it really wasn't because Jesus did have the authority to actually forgive that man's sins that day. It wasn't empty It was was authoritative. It It was something that he can do. He was able to do that. You and I can't do that definitively, but Jesus can. And that's very, very powerful. Jesus can justify what? The ungodly, as Romans tells us. Through faith, we can be saved. And his justifying work, though it's through our faith and not works and not anything that we do, we receive it as a gift of God. It was costly to Jesus, wasn't it? It cost him his life. He was suffer, he suffered, he died, he bled on the cross for us for our salvation. It was costly. So for him to be able to say you're forgiven, that was not a light thing. But Jesus, you see, he condescends doesn't he to his audience and demonstrates physically right there his authority to forgive and healing of the paralytic that day and he kind of proves it by actually healing the man too, after he forgave him of his sins. That's a kind of combination that nobody's seen before. You're going to say that you forgive, then you're going to have this paralytic rise and take up his mat. It was a demonstration that he actually does and can forgive. Kind of like the demonstration that the demons uh, were actually cast out of those two poor men that we saw last week when they were cast into the pigs and the pigs went off and drowned. You saw, oh, you know, they were crazy and, Struggling and possessed and in a terrible way, cutting themselves in a bad way. And then all of a sudden, they're clothed in the right mind, doing well. And the the, the pigs are into the water. So you see a physical demonstration about what Jesus had actually done as proof. And he does it here again with the paralytic. Now, what seems more miraculous to you, church? The healing or the forgiveness? What seems more consequential? And needed for this man and any other man or woman in this world. What was the bigger deal? What would you want? What are you desperate for? What do you see and esteem and see as the, the biggest and important thing in your life? If you have spiritual eyes, you will know that being forgiven by Jesus of your sins is the best kind of healing that there actually is, as we've seen before. But Jesus does both, doesn't he? He does both and demonstrates that not only he's uh, the healer, but also that he's the forgiver of sinners. What an amazing thing to see. But he moves on from the saving of the paralytic sinner to now another more more obvious sinner that we're going to see in our second point, in number two, the blatant sinner. Look with me now in Matthew chapter 9 and verses 9 through 13 to see this. heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, some would have no doubt associated the physical disability and hardships that we saw in the paralytic's life with personal sin. Let me explain that a little bit because some in that day wrongly assumed that physical sickness and trials were a direct result of sin. Think of Job as an example, or think of the man born blind. But Jesus refutes that view, doesn't he? And says that the blindness was not a result of of his sin. And the book of Job shows us that the calamities and physical hardships does not necessarily indicate personal sin. Though, just to be clear, it is possible from other passages of Scripture that sin and sickness and things of that nature could be tied together in certain situations, but it certainly was not always the case, though many wrongly assumed that it was. So people could have had that misunderstanding. This paralytic may have had that misunderstanding as well. But there was an even more obvious category of sinners out there not the sick or the crippled people who might have been assumed to have personal responsibility for their condition, which we see is clarified elsewhere in Scripture, but you see this other category of these outright blatant sinners that had the reputation to everyone around them of being shady suspects. You know those types of people, right? Like a, like a drug dealer today, or a prostitute, or someone involved in organized crime like a mob boss or the town drunk. Those are blatant, unflinching, not even trying to hide it kind of sinners, right? They're just like, this is who we are. I mean, you see categories of people parading it in pride, and celebrating it in certain months that this is who we are, this is what we're pursuing, this is where we're at, I'm proud of it, this is how I am, and I don't even care. Not even trying to hide it, kind of sinners, the blatant, the obvious, the open, the clear, sinners. I think we might be surprised. Maybe we're aware of this passage in these words, but I want you to see... The real impact here that Jesus even pursued and saved sinners in this blatant sin category as well. He went to them. In Matthew 4, Jesus called some fishermen to himself and they followed. We saw that. Now in Matthew 9, we see how the author of this gospel, Matthew himself, was called by Jesus to be his disciple. It's similar to the other summons or call of Jesus as it was met by immediate following without any if, ands, or buts, right, as we see. Unlike what we saw last week from the two would-be followers who had second thoughts and excuses after further review, right? They took the time out, further review, and they're like, yeah, but, or, or what about this? Or can I make some modifications? You see, Matthew, the other disciples followed Jesus. And I want to just say on this note, in conjunction with that charge that we saw last week, I want to ask all of us today if we ourselves have decided to follow Jesus personally ourselves. Remember, we can't have anybody else trust for us but kind of by association. But this is a question about you and your own situation before the Lord. Remember, it's not excuses or convenience or your own personal life plan and direction, but it's about have you chosen to follow Jesus in his call? The fishermen were called and they went. And now this tax collector, Matthew, was called and he also went. Has Jesus called you, and have you followed Jesus in your life? This is a really important question for all of us here, gathering in a church to ask. You think that the answer would be an obvious yes in every situation, but you see that you have these, little, these other categories of people who are not quite following Jesus, so it's good for us to examine about where we're at. Matthew, you see, he left a very lucrative career to follow Jesus. Yes, it was a shady career, to be sure. But this Matthew saw as a sacrifice that was worth taking, and he wisely saw that this was the right move for him for many reasons, not to mention the fact that God was clearly moving in his heart, softening him, showing him these things. But then he also saw in Jesus a way to have his sins forgiven, even a tax collector. Even Matthew, a blatant sinner. A tax collector was known as kind of like a shady businessman, much more like an organized crime pawn than anyone that we would associate with taxes today, right? This is a completely different context than we see now, But to kind of bring us into the time of Jesus to better understand how tax collectors back then were viewed, Douglas Sean O'Donnell helps us see the heinous and blatant, sinful, bad reputation that tax collectors had. And he said this. He said, To most first century Jews, tax collectors were easily the most hated men in Hebrew society. They were, reviewed, they were viewed as religious political traitors trained extortionists and thugs among the highest criminal element. The Mishnah and the Talmud, two ancient rabbinical documents, register scathing judgments of tax collectors, lumping them together with thieves and murderers. So Matthew was not some great guy up to that point, I hope you can see. And had a very suspect career, that made him despised, and rightly so, by many. But Jesus called him to be one of the disciples, to follow him. Think of the implications for that in our day and age. Jesus can call and save anyone he wants to, can't he? It's not a popularity contest, is it? If it was, you'd see Jesus would only choose to save the reputable and respectable people. But what did he do? He chose Matthew, a tax collector of all people. And then Jesus not only went to one shady tax collector, but after Matthew was called to Jesus, get this, Matthew set up a huge party at his house with not just one other coworker amongst him, but what? The text says that many tax collectors and sinners came to this meal. To socialize and eat with Jesus during this time period, it was even more personal to have a meal or have a dinner or lunch with someone. We're going to have a, a meal together, fellowship here after service. That's a personal thing. We we interact. It's great if we have someone in our house. That's a really uh, a neat thing for fellowship and engagement. We're we're saying that hey, we're we're there. We care for each other. We're we're friends with each other, that, that type of hospitality. You know, that, that says something in our day too. But in this day, it said even more. To eat with somebody was a personal kind of connection and care. It was a big deal. And for Jesus to eat with tax collectors and sinners, what do you think that looked like to the community? It was scandalous. How do you think the scribes who were just complaining about Jesus' ability to forgive and take away sins, how do you think they thought about that? Or how do you think the Pharisees, who were religious leaders and teachers, thought? How do you think they responded? Do you think they were encouraged by the good ministry Jesus was doing? Amazing way he was calling and saving and transforms lives? Not at all. They should have been. But instead, what do they do? They judge Jesus for spending time with these blatant sinners. But this is what's great. Jesus doesn't bat an eye, does he? And he even lets himself be seen by them almost as if he was baiting them into noticing his whereabouts at that party, parading it around so that everybody would know. Jesus doesn't sneak in the back door entrance to Matthew's house to stay out of eye's distance, does he? Not at all. He meets with sinners in plain sight. I think Jesus, like I said, this was his intention to blatantly make his presence known so that these Pharisees and scribes and other people might even see it. To show them that he wasn't ashamed to seek and save even blatant sinners. Jesus, get this, was blatant in his love and care and desire to help and save blatantly obvious, shady, suspect, marginalized sinners. This is amazing. What an amazing Savior. So different than the status quo. So different than we would think. Think of the implications here as well. Are we, as believers, willing to go to clearly lost people with the good news of the gospel, or not. Notice, Jesus even gives clear and obvious rationale to the religious leaders about his actions. Jesus kind of interrupts and cuts right into the gossip session there, as you see, because that is what the Pharisees were doing. They were going to Jesus' followers, what, to complain and to give their two cents and to give their disapproval and negative perspective how Jesus was conducting himself eating, of all things, with sinners in this way. And what does Jesus do? He kind of just, just walks right into that conversation, and that, 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 that gossip hour, that gossip time, and he gives straight answer to them. Look with me at verse 11 for that answer. It says, let's see it. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, what? But sinners. Do you see that there? This is groundbreaking stuff Jesus is bringing. Jesus really is the sinner savior isn't he? That's the perfect title for him, isn't it? As Romans 4, 5 tells us, it says this, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Jesus was all about seeking ungodly sinners. Now, to be clear, we're all ungodly sinners. Sinners, whether we know it or not. I mentioned at the start that not all of us know that we're sinners in this way or that we are ungodly or even that we need much saving to begin with. Now, we could point to everybody else who needs saving. We could say they certainly need saving. Oh, those people over there need saving. Those blatant sinners over there need saving, such and such. Yeah, they need help. They're in trouble. They're the problem. But not me. They could say that. But they need it. Now, people like that, you see, they might say things like, oh, we know that everybody is not perfect. We know that we're not perfect. But I want to show us that saying that you're not perfect or that you might have some kind of little problems or something like that is a far cry from knowing that we, in and of ourselves, are guilty sinners on our way to hell and judgment if it wasn't for Jesus. But that is what we need to think and feel and know if we are to be saved or if we are saved. That would evidence that. How do you think of yourself, I ask? Really, in your heart of hearts. How do you think of yourself? People who think they're good and righteous think they have no problem. Therefore, they have no need of a physician. But we need Dr. Jesus, don't we? All of us. We need him, why? Because we are sick, sin-sick, because we are guilty, dead guilty. We have no hope outside of Jesus befriending sinners like us. Do we see that? Or are we just respectable, good-standing people that have it together? You know, we, we do all the right things kind of publicly, and we're all good. Where are you? Are you desperate to be befriended by the Savior of sinners? Or do you think you're just pretty set and good? Notice, Jesus does not condone here blatantly sinful lifestyles and obviously shady sinners. He doesn't go in the house and be like, hey, we're going to just promote tax collectors and all their sinful ways and all these sinners. No, he calls Matthew to him. And what does Matthew do? He leaves his shady career and follows Jesus. And he's hopeful that Jesus' interaction with his Sinful friends in publicly blatant sinful ways might get a glimpse of Jesus and get saved themselves. That's what believers do. They get converted for much sin, and then they're wanting to point to Jesus as well. But Jesus befriends them to show that he's the answer and solution to their biggest need. And even if many in society put their nose up To these people with very obvious and blatant sins, Jesus doesn't, does he? And he pursues people like that in order that these blatantly sin-sick people might find a sin-curing doctor and savior in Jesus Christ. You see, that's the point. That's the point of all Christianity. Anybody who thinks they're good enough, Christianity's not for them unless they change that whole thing. There needs to be a conversion, a transition to to being self-sufficient, to being Savior-sufficient. Where are you at in this? Are you more like the Pharisees, gossiping about other people's sin, avoiding sick sinners, kind of thinking badly about everybody else? If you do that, then clearly you're not seeing your own sin, right? Right? We see Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, we must take the log out of our own eye, the log of sin, if we're going to be able to address the speck of sin in others. It's not that we completely ignore the reality of sin. It's just that we have a mentality that we want to get the gospel to all sinners so that they might be saved. I think the pharisaical, judgmental people may come off and talk a big game themselves, like they don't need a doctor. That's what they are. That's who they are. They, 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 they think that they're good, but in fact, they're not. And Jesus points them to that fact, even in quoting Hosea 6 here, and that he is all about showing mercy to sinners rather than making sacrifices before God to somehow make ourselves righteous on our own. We can't make ourselves righteous at all no matter how many good things that we might do or no matter how many bad things we might avoid. Jesus, you see, doesn't call good people. The passage says exactly that. It says that he did not come to call the righteous or good people. What? But sinners. And he came to show his mercy to them, not to make them like Pharisees. You remember in the other portions of the gospel, he says, you know, you Pharisees, well, this is loose but you Pharisees will make converts and you will make them twice as much the, the son of the devil as, as, as you are. You're making them worse. You're leaning them towards uh, more law and legalism and the wrong direction. But Jesus, you see, he comes to save sinners, not make a bunch of Pharisees. He, he desires mercy. God is about mercy. So we see here his mercy and his saving of the paralytic sinner who came to Jesus, who saw his need for Jesus. And we also saw the saving of the blatant sinner, Matthew, and a tax collector. But I want to close here asking the question, what about these religious folk? These so-called self-righteous ones, the ones who think they have it all together, who followed all the rules, who kept all the laws. What about them? What does Jesus say to them? This leads us to our third and final point. And number three, The religious sinner. Look with me now at verses 14 through 17 in Matthew 9. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put in fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. We saw Jesus' interaction with the scribe who scoffed at his claim to forgive the paralytic. We just saw Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, who huffed and puffed like the big bad wolf over Jesus having a meal with blatant sinners. We've seen this. These self-righteous ones, what did he say to them? Those who were pursuing religious things. How did he warn them? We see that he warns them, even throughout this whole passage, like John the Baptist warned them before, as we saw earlier in the book, of the coming judgment and the lake of fire to those religious leaders who didn't bow the knee to Jesus. And we just saw that he called out the scribe for their evil hearts. He called out the Pharisees for not seeing their need for him like the other blatant sinners would have seen their need for him. He even pointed them to the Old Testament scriptures in Hosea that God desires mercy over sacrifice, which clearly speaks directly to the legalistic tendencies of their pursuit of law covenant keeping when... They haven't caught caught up with the new age that Jesus brought in to the world at that time. They were were stuck in a different era. The only way anyone is saved, let me tell you, no matter what kind of a sinner it is, is through Jesus Christ. Whether crippled with disease, or crazy deep into their sins, or even the really prim and proper religious goody-two-shoes people that you might see walking around as well. Jesus is the one who saves. They're all sinners needing a savior. But here's the thing with the religious group. They don't just happen to see their real need for Jesus, and this puts them in a dangerous spot. And they can get hung up in the laws and sacrifices of the old covenant, and they don't see this clear fulfillment in Jesus Christ. They're stuck in those old ways, like I said, following an already fulfilled system as Galatians, the whole book of Galatians, warned the Galatians about and as we also saw. But remember, Jesus made it clear, just to be um, really specific here, in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, that he came to fulfill the law, not not necessarily to to do away with it or, or to say that the Old Testament and these other former covenants were we're all just not important in God's plan. It was important in God's plan, but you see Jesus is the, the promised one who fulfills all that was anticipated in the old. We see the fulfillment in Jesus. Do you see the fulfillment in Jesus? It seemed like some of the religious people in this scene did not see Jesus as the fulfillment, and they were struggling because of it. They couldn't get past the things that Jesus did because they were hung up on well-ingrained religious practices that they've always done throughout their lives. They thought was right and true. They were hung up and they were missing something in Jesus. Take the issue of fasting as we see here. John the Baptist's disciples were following the religious fasting traditions and practices of the Pharisees. They came to Jesus, get this, they came to Jesus to rebuke him for not being religiously faithful like they were. Oh, that's dangerous ground. Wow. Uh, We don't know exactly where John's disciples were at and and where they came around, but you see that they were learning on the go here. They didn't understand all the implications of Jesus up to this point. And so they needed to heed Jesus' teaching and correction here to kind of get straightened out in their own misunderstanding and sinful response to Jesus. Jesus. I want us to see this. For them to be calling out the Son of Man to the carpet wasn't a very good idea. Do you think that's a good idea? I don't think that's a good idea. Decide with the Pharisees over Jesus doesn't seem smart. That's just never the way to go. You don't want to go that way. As the Mandalorian would say, or the Mandalorian would not say to them, this is the way, actually. He would say, this is not the way. I know there's confused looks. That's a Star Wars reference. Those of you who know No, but that is not the way. You don't call Jesus out. You don't side with Pharisees. You side with Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he sets the standard. As we saw last week, he's the boss. He's the authority, not the religious fasting traditions that we know that the Pharisees added to over the years. You see, they added these traditions not based on Scripture that the disciples of John were kind of piggybacking onto, and they were fasting in these ways. And I want to say that fasting for religious purposes is not a bad thing for someone to do necessarily, but if they make it known publicly and brag about it, as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, of course, that was an issue. That was a bad way to go. Or as we see here, if you're fasting for the wrong reasons and you know, also you know, in the wrong time, that's also an issue as well. These disciples of John should have seen that Jesus was the main event, the real deal, and that his ministry on earth and all the good works that he was doing took precedent here. The healing and delivering that was going on was, was over the fasting traditions. In other places of the gospel, get this: People are complaining about Jesus doing good and healing what on the Sabbath. They're just getting caught up in sacrifice and ritual and tradition, and they're missing mercy. They're missing Jesus in the midst of all those religious traditions. And sometimes people in this category could miss Jesus in light of their well-worn, ingrained traditions. These religious people, his disciples, needed to get realigned and in line with Jesus' ways. He was the authority, He's the real deal, He's the main event not aligned with the Pharisees. Religious sinners also need to be saved too. They need to be pointed to Jesus too. And Jesus, you see here, at the end of this section, gives a couple quick different illustrations to point out to the reality that he sets a new trajectory in his person and work. Jesus Christ brings a new era. Jesus Christ is is where we need to focus. He changes Everything, he fulfills everything. He's the bridegroom that they should be rejoicing with and promoting and supporting in this earthly, urgent ministry, not calling him out for not meeting their specific religious practices. Have you ever known someone like that? Completely missing the point, completely disregarding biblically faithful ministry in favor of man-made distractions of their beloved traditions. This is exactly what we have here, and Jesus has to correct them. And Jesus says it like it is. He says, all the old way and focus isn't going to work. And that, once he's entered the scene, something new is going on. We saw this in Galatians. When the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. I don't want us to make the error of the unshrunk cloth of the old garment so that we miss everything and miss the point like these disciples of John were missing at the time. And we do not want to be putting new wine and a better covenant focus into the purpose and ministry of Jesus' ministry mixed with the old wine and the tradition of The Pharisees, that will just not do. I hope you can see that implication from the text. We must align ourselves with Jesus' ministry and get in line with how he directs us towards following him and stop questioning Jesus. He's not on trial. He sets the standard for us. And Jesus clarifies that there will be a future day of fasting, right? When the bridegroom, Jesus himself, will one day be taken away and there will be a cause for future fasting and mourning, and and even to this very day, we can have reason to fast and pray as long as Jesus has not returned yet. But I want us to see here Jesus and his disciples were not in the wrong in their pursuits of plowing along in the earthly ministry to do good works and miraculous deeds in their confidence and advancing of the kingdom, even in light of all the haters around them, even with everyone criticizing his ministry and their ministry. He knew what he was called to do. And I want all of us to consider now, are we willing to follow this authoritative king in light of the new direction and and the new way that he brings? Listen, no matter what kind of sinner you are, a sinner who knows his need of a savior, like the paralytic, or a blatant sinner who sensed his need of the savior after befriending Jesus, like we see in Matthew, or even if you are a religious sinner, knowing the right things to say and do, but sometimes, sadly and self-righteously, bucking against the ministry of Jesus. No matter where you're at, Jesus is the Savior of us all. I'd like to believe that these misinformed and off-base disciples of John at the time, John the Baptist, those disciples, that they woke up to their error in this interaction with Jesus and they turned away from the Pharisees' tradition and they turned toward Jesus. And i like to just rejoice over the fact maybe that just maybe many of the blatant sinners and tax collectors at Matthew's house that day because of Jesus' interaction with them, that they might have that day or even later been saved by the savior of sinners. And I'd like to believe even now that Jesus is saving sinners all over the world and maybe even here in this room. And I know that he is and does do that. So no matter what kind of sinner you are, turn to the sinner saver today. He's the doctor who can and does heal the sick. And he's the one who came for us. Believe and follow him alone. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful, Lord, that you are the one who saves sinners of all.